0: Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, a one-man project in County Mayo to recreate Shackleton's lifeboat and we have advice for you if you're buying a boat in the UK post-Brexit. Henry, or Harry McNeish, was a Scottish carpenter on Shackleton's Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914-17. He was one of the crew on the James Caird, which Shackleton sailed over 800 miles from Elephant Island to South Georgia to get help after the expedition's ship, the Endurance, was crushed in pack ice in the Weddell Sea. But McNeish and three others on the expedition were passed over for polar medals awarded by the king when Shacklin and company returned home. Mayor adventurer and sailor Jarnett Conan, who attempted to recreate that ocean voyage back in 1997, is building a replica of the James Caird as a Covid lockdown project. All that in tribute to Chippy McNeish. Lorna Siggins went along and visited his boatyard.
1: There's nothing but birdsong and the faint sound of lowing cattle as you walk along an old 19th century canal cut at Money near Ross Money in Inner Clue Bay. Up from the waterline, a beautifully built shed has a touch of Scandinavia about its design. Open the door and it's an artist's lair. Here, Mayo's Bernard Moitessier, master craftsman, sailor and adventurer Jarlith Cannan, has spent one long lockdown building a boat in memory of the Scots carpenter who Shackleton snubbed. Harry Chippy McNeish Conan, who won the Cruising Club of America's Blue Water Medal in 2005 for building and skippering North About on the first east-west polar circumnavigation through the Northwest and Northeast passages, explains what he's about.
2: It's Siberian larch. Yeah, it's built of Siberian larch, which was the only wood I could get at the time. It was actually made for cladding buildings, which I got in Torloughmore Sawmills. It was commissioned by the captain of the Endurance as an additional lifeboat. It was built in London. Worsley, the captain, described it as being clinker built, whereas all the photographs clearly show it as as carvel built, which is smooth, as you see here. And also in the description, Shackleton describes it as 20 foot Various others have said it was 22 foot, but I I measured the the James Caird in Dulwich College uh, at the start of this project, and it's actually 23 feet 2 inches. I took the lines off it there, so I came back, then lofted it, built it exactly the same shape. The materials are slightly different because I had to use the wood that was available. And you can see here that the original line was up to this gunnel. And while they were waiting on the ice, McNeish, the ship's carpenter, raised the lifeboat sides, I should say, by 15 inches. So I've left it blank at the moment, not knowing exactly what to do, whether uh, I'd like to show it as it was originally and show the additional height on it, as you see there.
1: And obviously having that additional height then, it helped them to do that journey.
2: That's right. Uh, Without having it raised like that, uh, it couldn't have carried the crew that it did. He also decked it over, fore and aft, and the sides, which gave them some shelter. Although it wasn't waterproof, it did help a lot. The materials were very scarce. They had to use the sledge runners and some canvas sails. They had to form the deck on it. McNeish was on that crew that did that voyage. Yes, uh, Macneish and Shackleton had a row earlier when they were waiting on the ice. They were dragging the boats across the ice. Some photographs show them pulling a boat across a highway, if you like, of smooth ice. But in fact, they were pulling it across hummocks, which would be four metres high, five metres high, and the boats were getting battered. Macneish, being a, a craftsman, he hated seeing his boats being damaged, which they were. So he said to Shackleton, we're not going any further, we stop. So they had a row there and then Shackleton threatened to shoot him, which I think brought him to his senses. And uh, the other question McNeish raised was, as the endurance had sunk, he was no longer under ship's orders and he wasn't being paid. He was concerned about this. And <laughs> Shackleton assured him that he was. He gathered all the crew together and he read the ship's articles, uh, clarified that they were uh, under ship's orders on land or at sea. So with that they continued on another bit but very shortly after that Shackleton saw the folly of dragging the boats across the ice and they set up camp and waited until the ice started to break up before they moved forward again. So McNeish was right then? Yes he was. Apparently McNeish was a contrary Glaswegian and I have found the same thing amongst very good craftsmen in my career in the building industry. The finest craftsmen can sometimes be the contrariest men you'll ever come across but I've always respected them for that and I can't blame McNeish. Everything he said was quite correct. The terrible thing about it was that afterwards when they got back safely King George V issued the polar medal to Shackleton and the crew and Shackleton didn't put McNish or three other of the crew forward for the medal, for absolutely no reason other than vindictiveness. I, I think it's fairly well recorded that, that he was a complete lothraman when it came to handling money. He left debts all over the place. I suppose it's he's not the only one that that that, that has happened to. Yeah, no, he 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 was not. A perfect person and I I think it's fairly well recorded that he had his defects like us all.
1: This is not the first time that you've built a replica of the James Caird because you built the Tom Crean. Maybe just uh, tell us a bit about that.
2: Yes, going back, it's 24 years ago now, Paddy Barry and Frank Nugent asked me would I join them in this expedition to repeat the voyage and I was delighted to be asked. We were able to organise a FOSS scheme. And we got together a team of boat builders down near Kilkenny under the auspices of the Lorry Mar Centre. The boat was built there. Michael Kennedy was the boat builder in charge of it. My only input really was to call occasionally and see that they had enough materials. And uh, I got the lines of it. It was based actually on the Achill Yawl because we didn't have the original lines of the James Caird at that time. But the Achill Yawl is extremely similar in design. It's double-ended and about the same size. Anyway, it was built down there and launched and we went down. Had a ship to Antarctica and we sailed 400 miles of the 800 mile journey until we were overwhelmed by uh, tremendous seas altogether, really hurricane force winds. And uh, we capsized and we capsized three times, in fact, and uh, we were lucky, I suppose, to uh, escape with our lives. We righted it each time, bailed out the water. I can tell you there's nothing worse than being in a boat upside down in the freezing Antarctic waters. We had taken the precaution of having Skip Novak in his boat, the Pelagic, sailing as an escort vessel, but he wasn't visible. We eventually decided that we should seek a weather forecast, which we got via Pelagic. The forecast was terrible. There was further gales to follow. So we decided to abandon it rather than risk our lives any further. So the following day, Pelagic indeed was in trouble as well with the seas. They came up the following day and they picked us up. And My last act was to bore a hole in the Tom Crane and watch it sink below the waves.
1: So Mick O'Rourke, the cameraman, was filming that and you were in tears as you were having to drill the...
2: Indeed. Well, it it was so sad after all all the work and particularly the lads in the boat building project uh, see all their work going like that, but... That's, uh, that's life. You, you have to make these decisions. Mick O'Rourke had sailed in Pelagic, and he was to take photographs. And we were kind of put off taking a lot of the photographs, saying we'd wait for better weather. But in fact, <laughs> as it turned out, we never got the opportunity. The photographs we did have were rather limited.
1: So the Tom Crean is at the bottom of the Southern Ocean. Oh, it's,
2: it, uh, Tom Crean now lies uh, comfortably in 1500 metres of water, somewhere in the south atlantic halfway between elephant island and south georgia so
1: you'll have a launch date for this then
2: i don't really i think this is a museum piece really and it should be preserved as a bit of history really you know having the tom crean an irishman and and there were several other irishmen on board the endurance the doctors and tim mccarthy i'd like an irish interest in it and there are several people interested in it at the moment as a museum piece So we'll see what happens. There's an awful lot of work to be done yet. It's still upside down. I have to turn it over now and do the interior. Although the interior is quite basic. But there are thwarts and masts and rigging and the decking to do. So I have lots of time to think about it and we'll see what comes up in the meantime. They made the sails from cut-down sails that they had on the Endurance. I think only one sail survived and that's in Dulwich College where the boat is preserved. The other sails didn't survive. Everything about the mast and rigging is unclear. The only thing we have is the painting by Marson. It's a painting well-known. It's called In Sight of Our Goal as they approach South Georgia. That's the only thing that gives us an idea of what the sails did look like. When they got to Gritvigen, the Norwegian whalers were most impressed with the voyage. And they brought the boat back to liverpool eventually and it was on display in various places on the roof of Selveridge's and then it got to shackleton's alma mater the dulwich college It was on tour then for a while it went to america it has been in the maritime museum in greenwich as well it had been repaired a couple of times there's a doubt little doubt in my mind about some of the details on it not being original but obviously the whole shape, the length, uh, breaths breadth are obviously as original. I've kept myself busy at this project and it is rather boring at times because I meet nobody. I'm in the workshop all day, all by myself, so I'm observing all the lockdown rules. But uh, at this stage now I'd miss going out and meeting my friends for a, a few pints. <laughs>
0: And that's a project which is really well worth us keeping an eye on. That was award-winning polar sailor and adventurer Jardeth Canaan speaking to Lorna Siggins at his boatyard in Ross Money, County Mayo. We've had a couple of inquiries from listeners about buying a boat in the UK post-Brexit. It's something which will apply in the vast majority of cases to people buying second-hand dinghies and towing them home for use over the summer from the UK but the UK has also been the major source of second yachts for Ireland for decades. Information on changes after Brexit has been hard to come by, but Norman Keane has been researching the issue. Norman is the author of the Irish Cruising Guides, that handbook of cruising around Ireland, and he's on the Irish Sailing Association Policy Group and the Irish Cruising Club. He told me what he'd found.
3: Now, I've got got some information from the revenue. It's quite difficult to find out from the revenue because when you're searching it you have to get the wording absolutely right or it says no results it's, it's not It's not what you'd call a sort of intelligent search engine however, uh, and it does take time if you ask the revenue a direct question it takes them they do come back but it might take them a couple of three weeks um, if you buy a, a boat in Great Britain Great Britain now, not Northern Ireland if you buy a second hand boat in Great Britain you will now have to pay Irish VAT which is 23% from um, a couple of days from now, uh, 28, 23%, if you're importing her to Ireland, and the boat will then have union goods status, which is to say that you will be able to take her anywhere in the EU and leave her anywhere in the EU indefinitely, if you want. Okay. Now, if the, boat, if the boat you're buying was built outside the UK, apparently, an additional duty is payable. And for, for EU-built boats, um, this is 10%. Uh, this was reported uh, the other day uh, in a float. Now, for EU-built boats, it's 10%. If the boat was built in the UK, it's not subject to that 10%. The problem is that most e- UK boat builders have gone out of business. Um, sure. The only the only UK boat builders of, of you know, decent-sized yachts, at the moment are Bowman, um, Rustler, and Oyster. And for motor Motorboats, Princess. That's it. Uh, Moody yachts are still... You can still buy a Moody, but it's built in Germany. The the brand was bought by Hansa. All the common yachts, uh, Jeanne O'Beneteau, um, Ovni, uh, Dale, Bavaria, Hansa, um, Albert, Rassi, da, da, da they're all built in the EU. And so they will be, if you buy a second-hand one of those from Great Britain, you will now be subject to 33% tax on the second-hand purchase on importing it to Ireland. Now, is that going to be charged on your purchase price or is it going to be charged on the Irish customs valuation of the boat? I don't know. Now the, the question now I
0: have, though, is that if a boat has been purchased in the UK, the original UK owner paid VAT on that. So now, yep. which is the European yep. tax. So now you import it to Ireland or out to France or wherever, you're being asked to pay the European tax a second time.
3: Yes, if you if you if you buy the boat now and and, and bring it to Ireland, uh, bring it to the EU. Yes, you, that is correct. Um, if you If you had bought a a boat in Great Britain, which in fact we did six, seven years ago, and that boat was VAT paid in the UK when the UK was a member of the EU, and you bring her to Ireland and she was in Ireland at the end of last year, then she is still considered to be VAT paid in the EU. But if you go to Great Britain now and buy a boat, She's not considered VAT paid. The term is union goods. She's not union goods and she has to be VAT paid all over again in the European Union.
0: That is cutting off a main source of where people buy boats. They go to the UK where the, the number of boats available is phenomenal. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of yachts. That The sale market is very large.
3: Yes. Oh, yes. That's the go-to place for people in Ireland to buy um, a second-hand boat. And unfortunately, I I, I think that's, that market now is going to be choked off. Um, I think if I were to be buying a second-hand boat now and I had scanned the Irish market and found nothing I wanted, I think I'd be heading for somewhere like La Rochelle, which has got a 4,000 Berth Marina. And if you can't find a boat there that you like, I don't think you're looking hard enough. But, but you, you, you will be dealing with... with uh, uh, you'll be dealing with France, you'll be dealing in a different language, you'll be dealing with unfamiliar bureaucracies around the buying and selling of things like that so it's it's not convenient but yeah, basically we can't buy a boat in Great Britain anymore You could you could faced. go
0: down to Spain, you could go down to northern Spain
3: You could uh, I'm not sure there are, would be too many but the other, the, other, the other big place to buy a boat is the eastern Mediterranean somewhere like Greece or Croatia
0: but then you've got an awful, an awful long trip to bring it back.
3: You've an awful long trip to bring it back, yes.
0: So what do you think is going to happen with the VAT thing? You know, Is there any move whereby you might get relief if it's been paid in, on a second-hand item?
3: I don't know. Um, uh, Nobody seems to know. No, no. I mean, the, the answer to so many questions about Brexit is, I don't know. Um, a lot of this kind of stuff is unforeseen. It's, it's kind of unintended consequences of it's not that somebody actually sat down. I mean, the, the yacht market is way below the radar on the, the, in the in the grand scheme of things when it comes to uh, Brexit negotiations.
0: Another issue we've spoken to you about. Before is the issue of agricultural diesel in leisure craft. Most marinas up the west coast only sold agricultural diesel, but under new regulations, it became illegal for leisure craft to have agricultural diesel. And normal diesel, normal domestic diesel, I might call it, was not available.
3: Yes, the the outcome of that is not as bad as we had feared. Um, there is still a great yawning gap on the northwest coast. There's really nowhere from uh, Roundstone right up to, well, to the foil. And and if you go to a marina with a green diesel pump, the likelihood is they will refuse to fill your boat because the revenue um, auditing process is focusing on the suppliers, not the customers.
0: So what do I do then? I'm going up along the West Coast. I'm running out of diesel. There's nowhere I can find that I can go and get it and fill up at a marina.
3: Well, you just have to carry a few extra cans of white diesel. Um, We are on white, and it's not as bad as it it was feared to be. You can buy white diesel at reasonable intervals along the coast all the way. Once you go north of Dingle, you can buy white diesel in in, uh, Rossaville and Roundstone. And once you go north of Roundstone, you really have to be carrying enough diesel to see you right around Mallonhead. That's, that's about the size
0: of it. Thanks to Norman Keane. And there's your warning on Brexit and on green diesel. The government has launched a public consultation on marine spatial planning in Ireland ahead of planned legislation. Most people have never heard of marine spatial planning and in fact it's a new concept. But Green MEP Grace O'Sullivan has been working on this area for many years. She spoke to me from Brussels earlier and explained what we mean by marine spatial planning
4: maritime or marine spatial planning it's the process of bringing together everyone with an interest in the sustainable management of the seas and oceans and delivering a strategic plan or vision for our coasts so when you think of it in a simple uh, sense i suppose it's about all those people um that live around uh, the coast of ireland and indeed Inland, who have an interest in in the sea and the ocean. So you have the fish fishers, you have the uh, aquaculture, seaweed harvesters. Then you have the sailors, the tourists, the recreational and sport tourism, commercial freight ferries, commercial ports, all of the um, rescue services. So there's a huge um, this huge uh, array of people in Ireland who have an interest in the area, and now more than ever, the whole area of the marine space. So that's marine off the coastline, but also going out into the deeper waters.
0: We're going through a consultation process on marine spatial strategy here in Ireland, and there's legislation about to come into the door.
4: That's right. So there has been, um, uh, that legislation has been in the committee stages. Over the last number of weeks, so we're waiting for it to come into into the door, and that is called the Ireland's National Marine Planning Framework um, legislation. But the piece of work that the Irish government have to present to the European Commission, it's called the Maritime Spatial Planning directive.
0: You held a webinar on this with some experts during the week. You've also commissioned a document on it. That document has told you some very specific things of where we should be going in Ireland in this area.
4: Really what I wanted to do was simply try to demystify all of these different pieces of legislation that, like, the, that has to go to the EU that's happening nationally because um, I, I think there was a sense that people were being flummoxed by the different terms that were going around. So initially, my plan was to get a, a, a report that would demystify, and we've done that. Um, and then uh, what we have to do is acknowledge that in Ireland, um, over the, the coming uh, years, up to 2030, that 30% of our uh, marine area will be given over to uh, protected, a protected area. So this will incorporate um, marine protected areas, but also um, there will be more um, interest in harnessing the renewable energy around our coast. So that the, from an Irish perspective, how are we going to balance the different interest groups? How are we going to make sure that we can meet our climate um, obligations under the Paris Agreement by uh, creating renewable energy Uh, Offshore uh, and onshore, but the offshore scene is really important. But how are we going to do that uh, and ensure that the the coastal communities and the fisher people and uh, those who have uh, an interest in in the commercial interest, but also in um, valuing the heritage and culture of um, our marine space, that everyone's voice has been heard? So one of the recommendations in My report is that good consultation needs to take place. So it's really important that the government invests in ensuring that there's really proper and timely consultation processes. Yeah, You called it
0: community-led planning. So asking people to engage with the process, whether or not you walk on the beach or whether or not you're building a huge offshore wind farm.
4: Exactly, or whether you're walking on the beach or whether you're part of a community group that cleans the litter off the beach or are you part of a sailor who goes out to sea, you know, to enjoy the beauty of the sea. So it's, it's really, or are you in the Coast Guard, you know, are you in the, the um, rescue services? So it's very, very important that all communities recognise that that marine space around Ireland, so how are we going to make sure that we can protect our marine ecosystems whilst supporting sustainable fisheries and benefiting from the the wind and the uh, different renewable energy capacities that Ireland has available to it.
0: Thanks to MEP Grace O'Sullivan. And the government website gov.ie has all the details of how you can contribute to this process. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're lucky enough to be anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe.